systemicists would say, well, World Economic Forum, like these people are, they're sort of created by the system, right? Um, and then the conspiracy theorists would say, well, the people in the World Economic Forum created the system. And, but it seems to me that, you know, there's good arguments both ways and both are probably true. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley. We've got a full house today. We've got Ilan Martin, Adam Daniels, Luke Koch, and joining us live from Mars. We don't yet have video streaming from Mars, so uh, we've just got the audio, but we've got John Carter, who writes postcards from Barsoom. Um, his substack is barsoom.substack.com. We'll include a link in the description. Uh, John writes, he, I, I, do, I, was, I was just checking your Substack today, John, and it looks like you just started in April. Is that correct? That is correct. And thank God for psychic communications or the eight-minute lightspeed delay would really get in the way of, uh, of recording this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it helps uh, having super psychic powers. Uh, hey, maybe we can discuss that too. Um, but you, you write really interesting things. You started out with a few articles on uh, DIE, diversity, inclusion, and equity. And you've um, so I found you pretty early. Um, I started, I think I started my Substack roughly around the same time, you know, a couple of months ago. And, um, but you've, you've, you've got a, a diverse range of things that you talk about. Um, what's the, what's your overall kind of, you know, philosophy on what you, on what you write about? Um, is it just all these things interest you or what kind of determines the subjects that you, um, you know, that you get into? It's, um, largely whatever interests me at the time. Uh, I have a very broad range of things that I read about that I've gotten interested in over the years. Uh, strong opinions on a lot of subjects. Um, and I try to bring all of that to bear on whatever it is that I happen to be interested in discussing in, at a given time. Um, but exactly what that's going to be, I don't really, I don't have that planned out so much from day to day. Uh, like I might kind of wake up and be like, oh, I should write about this today. And then I go for a walk uh, or I have a conversation with a friend or something. We talk and like, and like that triggers some ideas and I end up writing about something completely different. Yeah. Well, and cool. um, may I ask how you, um, how you came up with the idea of like uh, starting that Substack in the first place? I mean, that, that would be interesting. Uh, and, and maybe you could also like, um, talk a little bit about your, your background um, and the history that, that led up to the, you know, to the publication. I mean, have you always had these thoughts um, and you just didn't write about them or was there some kind of like um, uh, thing that triggered it, you know, some, some stuff, or maybe you could just uh, talk a little bit about that. I think you can probably guess from the t subject matter of the first uh, four or five essays on on the Substack, um, which are essentially a critique of modern academia uh, from a variety of angles. And that kind of came out of just like the frustrations that have been boiling up in me over the last two years in particular, you know, some of them kind of like professional frustrations, you know, tight job market, like what am I going to do with myself next, you know? Um, but others just, you know, seeing the, uh, the total, sort of moral and intellectual collapse that's happened 
inside the university system um, during the uh, the coronavirus lockdowns and the total lack of pushback from that and just the sort of frustration of it kind of like built up one day and I was I just had just had to come out. Um, I didn't feel like writing scientific papers anymore. Uh, so I just wanted to write something else that was actually more interesting. Um, that's a main reason that I haven't been writing anything for the last, for, for many, many years now, uh, because I've been spending all my time writing science. What, uh, which I kind of took a break from for the last. Yeah. Can, can you, mm -hmm. maybe, can you get into generalities of the, the fields or the, you know, the field that you were writing in? Like, is this a large departure for you or was it, uh, um, does it kind of follow on from that. your academic interests? Uh, no, I'm an astronomer. Okay, cool. But, but what I read about on Postcards from Barsoom has essentially nothing to do with what I do professionally. Aside from your location, of course, you know, the, you know astronomer on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's interesting. And because um, I, I kind of got the feeling, you know, from, from, your, from your writing that you're uh that you have like read a lot of stuff you know like about mm -hmm. philosophy and politics and all of that um so was that always like uh, uh, more or less a, a hobby or like a side interest um absolutely um i was reading nietzsche back in high school for fun uh or the iliad things like that um i have always had like a very broad range of of interests going into philosophy, esotericism, various branches of science, history. Um, and as you can see from the Substack, I'm a huge science fiction nerd as well. Well, uh, first, you, you're kind of a fellow after our own heart because these are topics that greatly interest us too and inform, I think, in part at least, how we come to a lot of our thoughts and feelings that we express on the show. And uh, the other thing is, that's very interesting because um, astronomy, I, my guess was that you were in the humanities and you, you wouldn't expect on first glance to, uh, to read your material and to have, and to think that you were experiencing so much of this um, ideological possession being in such a, mm. uh, uh, in the sciences. Um, you know, because things would seem to be fairly cut and dry and not subjective. But, uh, I mean, we, we know how it's affected the medical and healthcare uh, establishments. But that's very interesting that you've, you've felt on such a deep level uh, this reach um, in, in astronomy, in that department. So uh, it, this it is a, it's just a pervasive. It's um, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, I addressed this in one of the early essays. Uh, obviously, the, the the origin point for this kind of ideological possession, which has infiltrated the academic system, is the are the humanities departments, um, and I think there's good reasons for that. Uh, frankly, I think it, it comes down to the fact that when they threw open the universities in the 1970s by making student loans wi widely available, you went from a situation where a small percentage of the population would go to university, those being people with really high IQs, 
who would get scholarships or rich kids, essentially. Um, and rich kids will more often than not be maybe a little bit higher in uh, um, intellectual quality than uh, than anyone else, just for family and he uh, heritability reasons. So you go from a situation where you have a small number of pretty intelligent people going into the universities um, and uh, whatever subject they happen to major in, they're going to be very smart, to a situation where you have something like one third of the population. So now you're sampling that IQ bell curve much more uh, widely. So disciplines like engineering, medicine, uh, the sciences, like the hard sciences, I mean, um, you can't dumb those down without severe loss of capability. And there are immediate practical consequences to that, you know, bridges collapse, right? Uh, so those had to stay rigorous. So, okay, where do the administrators house all of the midwits? Well, you can dumb down English literature pretty easily, right? So now you have lower capability people going into uh, the humanities disciplines and they start to become very quickly, very ideological because it's these disciplines that around the same time you have uh, kind of Marxist academics who have strong ideological um, uh, goals, who they start to gravitate themselves towards teaching those disciplines and indoctrinating the students in those disciplines with these theologies and gradually converting them into, <clears throat> you know, uh, ideological warriors, essentially, who become kind of scary for everyone else on campus. They start getting their way with a lot of stuff and their influence starts to grow. And, you know, when I started uh, my own academic career about 20 years ago, uh, it was definitely still the case that the sciences were kind of a refuge from that. That's actually why I, I started as a literature major in my first year of university because um, I wanted to be a science fiction writer and uh, then realized I wasn't going to learn much there. It was all too ideological. I didn't like the books they were having me read. So I switched into physics thinking I will learn science and that will help me be a science fiction writer. Uh, and also thinking this at least will not be ideological because I was sick of the ideology. And that was true up until the last decade, really, is when you, that started to change. And uh, you can't make the sciences themselves ideological so easily, but you can start to influence hiring decisions, admissions criteria, things like that, um, along uh, DIE uh, lines to say, okay, well, we need more women, we need more minorities, we need to have different standards, basically, um, and we need to have speech codes, we need to have codes of conduct at conferences, and sort of like all of these sort of organizational influences um, that have kind of started to permeate the sciences. And, you know, you even have things like in the National Science Foundation, uh, where they have these things called broader impacts, where when you apply for a grant, you need to demonstrate not just the scientific merit of what you want to do and the practicality of it, the plausibility of it. Uh, you also need to demonstrate um, how will this advance uh, socially desirable goals, um, which you can interpret that. Uh, right. So 
<laughs> well, that reminds yeah. me, I was reading a, I was reading a book. Yeah. I was reading a book for when I was writing uh, the intro for uh, for political ponderology on education in some of the Eastern Bloc countries. So like Poland, I think it was Poland, Hungary, and the and Czechoslovakia, and by John Connolly. Mm-hmm. So he was writing about the process of of what happened, the kind of ref, the Stalinist reform of education when all these countries became communist, and he pointed out. This is getting back to your point about the you know the bell curve and and IQs and he pointed out that at least on on the surface and for the most part in reality what the what the reform in education was trying to do was to to basically give the the peasants and the workers a chance to to go to university if they you know if they um, you know if they wanted to or if you know which they couldn't before and he points out that some of the results were actually good because you ended up getting a lot of the the smart peasants and and workers who you know who wouldn't have otherwise had an edu- uh, had the opportunity to get a, an advanced education but on the other hand you had you also had the 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 midwits you had the, the people who weren't qualified to be a university student and it just um it, there were a few things that happened. So one was these kids, and this this the same thing happens in in Western universities. These kids get got to got to university, and then were just totally overwhelmed. Even though they had like remedial education courses to get them up to speed for university, even those they were just they were they they couldn't cope with the the level that they were expected to perform at, and. And then you, but then this is where the ideological component really came in: is that the the students acquired so much power that the the students could essentially outvote the the teachers on on many issues, and and so, um, well, and then added on to that, you had the whole kind of commie cancel culture thing, where teachers uh, professors were ratting on each other and settling scores and settling feuds by reporting each other to to the secret police and getting each other fired and sent off to the gulag so um so on the one hand there, there's a bunch of stuff going on here there like there is a or there was in this example the 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 notion of there are there is or at least in that case there was untapped potential and there are in certain scenarios but what we have going on today is that like that's not what's going on as you say it's like 30% of the population well maybe it's maybe 30 30 plus percent of the population shouldn't be going to university like maybe that's not what it was actually designed for and that's not the way it should actually work and then you get this this creates uh, aside from the problems within the university that, that that causes, and then all of the knock-on effects from that, like you said, uh, like you're just diluting the well, bridges are breaking, that sort of thing. You get the 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 kind of macro dynamics that a guy like Peter Turchin talks about, where you have this this pool of people. He uses the example of lawyers, like this is uh, elite overproduction, where you have um, a whole ton of people that want to be lawyers because they want to enter the ruling class, and then you've got too many lawyers. You've got too many people wanting to enter the ruling class. So you have all of these underperforming or under-earning lawyers who then feel resentful about the system because they're not getting, you know, they, they should just be able to go get a law degree and then they'll, they'll become the, they'll become the upper class, like ruling elite. And that doesn't happen. And then that, that contributes to the social, po- the, the social or, or the political polarization and the political infighting. And then you get intra-elite infighting, which eventually turns into something like a civil war. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's stupid in so many different ways, but did, have you thought or have you seen anything like that, or do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I've been noticing this for years now. Um, so I've been aware of Turchin's ideas for some time. I haven't read his books, but um, I've I've certainly read essays by him. Uh, 
And that overproduction of elites is definitely um, related to all of these people going into the university system and being promised these amazing, you know, high paying managerial jobs. And then they get out and they're working at Starbucks, for instance. Um, and I think to a large degree, that is what has driven cancel culture as a means of, of intra elite competition of that kind of scramble to climb the greasy pole. Like, you know, if you're not actually, if you don't have the, the raw ability to do something, but you can cancel your, your competition. Like, Hey, great. You know, like he used, he used the wrong word because that is now the wrong word. Therefore you can't hire that guy. Um, and this is actually creating just a really explosive uh, situation because on the one hand, you've got the uh, hmm, functional institutional elite, which is uh, increasingly, dominated by sort of just very incompetent people who can't really do the job, who are um, sort of blocking out people who can do the job on the basis of immutable characteristics, white straight guys for the most part. Um, so on the one hand, you've got that, this incompetent elite. On the other hand, uh, you've got all of those white straight guys who are competent, who are capable, who have been kind of blocked out of advancing. And these are younger guys typically because like, you know, your, your 65 year old baby boomer, he's not going anywhere, right? It's your 25 year old zoomer who is feeling the effects of these kinds of policies. So now you have on the one hand, the people running the institutions are kind of terrible at it. And on the other hand, the people who would maybe form a good chunk of the sort of natural elite, if you will, have been uh, artificially kept from what they kind of instinctively would think is their sort of rightful place in life. How that ends? Well, historically, right? Like, I mean, it's, you, it's, it's an explosive situation. I, I've been watching this develop for, for years now. And um I think I became aware of it, especially sort of around the time of around like 2015 when Trump was uh, the Trump campaign was um, sort of rising and like looking at the kind of energy behind that, which was largely driven specifically by this kind of like, you know, young, these like young white guys who were the, um, not the largest voting bloc, but they were the ones generating the memes and fighting the online battles and such. And like, that's why they rallied to him as a champion because they thought, hey, this guy can maybe change things for the better and then you know we saw what happened after he was elected the kind of clamp down that followed from from the elites and i've been watching the kind of resentment of that kind of filter through the population and it's um i would say from what i've seen the consensus has kind of shifted from well maybe we can you know, find a way to like make the system work to increasingly like, nope, the system's too broken. It just needs to be replaced when like, you know, to your comments about civil war. Yeah. That's how that happens. Mm -hmm. Ultimately. Well, it's, you, uh, your last one, uh, I think it's your most recent post on Barsoom. Um, I, uh, I didn't get a chance to read it. I just kind of skimmed through and then I read some of the comments and you one in, in the comment you said, well, you know, th looks like it's kind of too late to change anything. So this is this is like a, a proposal for 
for maybe how, how we can rebuild after it all falls apart, uh, you know, as, as opposed to changes that can be implemented. Um, well, yeah. What what are some of your what have, what are some of your uh, great ideas for uh, for how to recreate society once it once it falls apart? Just lay it out. Let, give us a give us oh, your full man. program there. The utopia. <laughs> yes. If I'm being if I'm if I if I'm being like trollish, I would say uh, Starship Troopers Republic. Only military veterans can vote. Um, which, if you've uh, if you've read Starship Troopers yet, Heinlein actually like lays out. Um, the uh the reasoning behind that and it's not actually easily dismissed um i am kind of against the universal franchise i do think the franchise should probably be earned uh people should need to demonstrate in some fashion that they have the emotional and psychological capabilities to put the interests of the group ahead of their their own interests um i lean towards uh, do you know distributism you heard of that? No. So this this was a, an idea that um, so the Catholic political philosophy. Uh, Chesterton was the one who came up with it. So basically, it the idea in distributism is that problems should be solved at the level at which they exist, hmm. and that uh, following that principle, decision making power should be sort of pushed out maximally to the periphery it's like so to whatever degree it can be pushed out from the center it should be pushed out so if something can be handled at the individual level it should be an individual responsibility if it can be handled at the family level to the family that handles it and and so on with only the sort of problems that really do require a national or international i suppose um strategy having some degree of coordination at that level um, which is pretty vague, but that's kind of like what I what I lean towards, and very much against this kind of increasing managerial centralization that we kind of live under these days. Hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that sounds intriguing, you know, because I um, I'm also kind of tired sometimes be, uh, of these ideological wars, you know, be between libertarians and uh, and whatever, you know, socialists, uh, capitalists, and all of that. Yeah. I, I think this this kind of like. Um, misses the point in some way and just neither of these things kind of jives with you know actual human experience and uh it's it can get like kind of ideo ideological and uh and all these endless debates you know like and sometimes it's like I'm, i'm i'm being a bit mean now but like you know the the libertarians sometimes they sound a bit like the commies you know like oh but real libertarianism it just has never been tried you know? <laughs> and you know and and then you know you I, i live in france now you know which is a pretty socialist country you know i mean you you guys in america would would call it like a soviet uh, system you know <laughs> and um and but you know i mean you can argue against that and you can point out problems and blah 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 but the only fact is it well, it went pretty well for 70 years straight now um, so that's a fact, you know, and, and so it really depends on, on, on the culture, like really, and, and on the cohesion, you know, among people, what their history and all, all of that. And also, as you said, um, you know, the different levels, I think that's just, um, you know, the crux of the matter. And then it gets really complicated and non-ideological, you know, because you just need to figure out like real world problems as they occur. And, um, And sometimes it's got to be the state, man, you know, and uh, hopefully not too much. But um, uh, and yeah, as long as you you try to make it local, you know, as much as you can, then then, then it's good. And um, yeah, but, uh, that sounds good. I, 
I, I completely agree. Uh, I'm, I find ideology tiresome. Um, it, well, to sort of, uh, um, paging in the Gilchrist, it's, it's so it's, it's very left brain hyperdominant where you sort of develop this simplified schematic of how things should work. And then you try to find ways of how this can apply um, and in any and every situation. So you know, the libertarian will say, well, we have to have market solutions for private security, for uh, military security, for, for you know, everything, right? Um, and then like your, your kind of status communist will say, no, we must have central planning for even what kind of bubble gum you're going to chew. Uh, and, you know, each of these are absurd extremes where if you take a step back and you look at the world and it's full human complexity and say, okay, well, that's kind of dumb. Like, you know, yes, there are some cases where a state is the best solution. There are some cases where the market is the best solution. And there are some cases where neither is the correct solution, where like the family is the correct solution, you know, um, or a religion is the best solution. And you just kind of have to take each of those as it comes in its own context. And when you're looking at everything through an ideological lens, you're not seeing the world anymore. You're seeing this simplified schematic model of reality. Mm -hmm. And there's associated with that schematic comes the, the tendency to then want to impose it on everyone else because, you know, you've got the, you've got the right the right idea so everyone else should be that so i'm a i'm a firm a firm believer in actual like real diversity i think that there should be like a hundred or like you know 200 different political systems you know for one for each different country and maybe there should be more countries maybe the you know some of the big countries should kind of like uh you know divide up into some smaller countries and then we'll have a, a whole bunch of different systems that can uh and they, they there should be a, a rule there should be <laughs> There should be one one uh, world dictator, and his only job is to make sure that no one has the same system. And then we just see which ones uh, which ones actually work, which which features kind of work. But but I'm, of course I'm I'm kind of exaggerating. But I think that I, I do think that's a good principle. No, but no Venezuela. That's too much like yeah, yeah. communism. You have to do Venezuela. Come on, be more original. <laughs> right. So, but with that, well, well. There's the total, that mindset is totally lacking um, among not just the the kind of the international community, which are, you know, the the, the group of, of Western nations where it's like, no, there's only one form of government and everyone that doesn't have this form of government is evil. And we have to assimilate them into our international rules-based community. When... Um, it, end of history, uh, yeah. Yeah, but like no, I, I think that I think there should be more variety, and that that we should just kind of take a a detached look at it and say, okay, well, what what is actually what actually works? Okay, well, this works there. Is that because of you know cultural reasons, or is that because of they've actually got something that's replicable in in other nations, or well, what, and which nations would it be rec replicable rec replicable in? And uh, because some things like. Uh, Democracy, as we think of it, like so, you know, modern Western liberal democracy, it's it might it might actually be a good idea for certain countries because it works and because there's a history. But, but then, when you look at an example like the the Russian Empire followed by the Soviet Union, there are certain things that just 
didn't work and couldn't work just because of where where was Russia was at and its and just its history and it's the trajectory that it that it had been on for for generations for centuries and to to try to then like impose that when you impose uh when you impose that schematic on a country that it's just not suited for or that isn't ready for it then you're going to get um you're going to get pushback and uh, like collateral damage like like Russia in the 90s um it's it just it didn't work for for I, I, and for like to um how, how to put it for the actual like uh, good or or well-meaning americanists who wanted um you know Russia to become more of a liberal liberal democracy like the US for instance like th- the way they look at it the 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 reforms that were instituted in the 90s they actually like like liberalism has a really bad name in Russia but it's partly it's at least partly um not justified because they didn't really go through with it like they didn't really follow through with it they, like there were these um uh like half-hearted reforms that were instantly hijacked and um so it, it's like uh, a lot a lot of russians think that um liberal democracy is bad well they're right for some reasons, but some of the reasons that they have for thinking it's bad is is a total misunderstanding of of what it's actually like to you know to live in a country that's actually been like that for a hundred years or so. Um, but basically, it's just as you said, there's there's so much complexity involved that to take just a hardline ideological approach misses like all of the nuance, all of the details, and yeah, really, um, you know, we should we should tr- try to see what some like a uh, what, what what a new 21st century Western monarchy would look like in some some country or something? You know, it would be it would be fun. <laughs> Try it out. Yeah, I mean, the, the joke in the 90s in Russia was that what capitalism accomplished in four years that communism could not accomplish in 70 years was to make communism look good. Yeah. Um, I think applies to liberalism as well. Uh, and you know, Russia, you know, this is an interesting example, I think, of what you're talking about sort of historically. So you mentioned that kind of transition from czarism to uh, Soviet Russia to, you know, Putinism, essentially, right? And the thing that they all kind of have in common is that they're all intensely autocratic. They're very authoritarian systems. And Russian culture seems to gravitate towards this kind of um, strongman running uh, an authoritarian empire, regardless of what the nominal political ideology happens to be. And there are probably very good cultural reasons for this. Uh, Now, if you were to try to impose this system in New England, uh, there would probably be a revolt against that because the sort of Anglo or Dutch mentality does not like this very much. We're descended from these yeoman farmers who are jealous of our rights. You know, we kind of gravitate naturally toward, I mean, we made the king sign the Magna Carta 800 years ago. we, we like having more distributed uh, political power, but that's our culture. Um, so, Thukikides, in uh, the, uh, his, uh, his history of the Peloponnesian War, um, so you can see the similar kind of dynamic back then, right? So, on the one hand, you have the Athenians who have their, uh, their strong ideological commitment to Uh, semi-universal suffrage democracy, right? Like all all freeborn men are citizens uh, and can run for office and the whole bit. And um, they've got their sort of trade empire that evolved out of the Delian League, I think it was called, um, where they're trying to 
impose this model of democracy on every single other polis. And then you have the Spartans who have their weird two kings constitution that's just totally bizarre. No one has anything like this. The Spartans don't want to be a democracy. They don't want to impose their system on anyone else. Uh, they're sick of the Athenians trying to impose it on them. And after a while, the two end up going to war. And you have the autocratic Spartans actually leading this uh, diverse alliance of various other Greek city-states who all have their own different kinds of constitutions and don't want to be imposed, have the Athenians imposed on them versus the ideological Athenians who are like, no, you all have to be democracies, you know? Um, so yeah, this has been, this kind of thing has been happening, I think, for a long time. Uh, and I think you see this in the world now um, with the, the, the two kinds of alternatives that I kind of see taking shape are what you might call um, national globalism, where each state becomes like a franchise of a centrally managed uh, global concern versus uh, global nationalism where you know you have individual states running themselves as they see fit according to whatever kind of matches their circumstances culture history and geography uh and then kind of cooperating or competing amongst themselves again as they see fit to you know reach whatever goals without that kind of you know uh, without without having some kind of central authority telling them, here's what your environmental policy is going to be, here's what your trade policy is going to be, uh, here's what your defense policy, your monetary policy, and so on are going to be. Um, so obviously the BRICS are that second one, the uh, global nationalists, right? You, China putting together the Belt and Road Initiative, which is all about linking everyone together with a trade network, but not, not actually trying to force everyone to adopt the Chinese model of communism as their local ideology uh, versus the West, who are like, no, you must all be liberal democracies and have our values and, and so on and so forth. Well, uh, on that subject, the West and... Uh, <clears throat> We're all here in the U.S., and we've all been observing all of these incredibly uh, destructive and negative changes on so many different levels, uh, John. And um, in one of your most recent articles, uh, in a in a kind of uh, examination of um, you know what uh, July Fourth is, what American independence really is, uh, you mention cognitive conquest and conquest by stealth oh, yeah. and all the, all the many ways in which uh, the U S is being um, destroyed from within. Uh, and I thought it was a, a very good examination and it reminded me a little bit of uh, Michael Rechtenwald's writings because he is a fellow academic. He's also able to see the intersectionality, if you will, of of all of these different policies, how they're all being pushed by the same people, how they're all being uh, propagated and centralized and um, inflicted uh, upon people in, in whatever sector they happen to exist in. In any case, I wonder if you could, in your own words, give a summation of uh, what the hell you think is happening at the at the highest levels. 
And if you want to get in metaphysical, get metaphysical uh, about the it. Highest levels. <laughs> yes. How, how is it that we're... <laughs> yes. Well, the highest, the highest level, um, as, as in Cliff High's terminology, you've got the bug, uh, the alien, you know. No, I'm just joking, but not really joking. I'm not actually sure if I'm joking about that or not. Geez. <laughs> um, uh, at the very highest level, um, with what's happening in the U.S., I think a lot of it is... I mean, as I described in that article, which actually was kind of a toss-off, I was surprised at how popular it was. Um, it's a good article. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the basics of the article are, uh, the basic idea is, okay, so you have America, which is this strong, um, you know, militarily very well-armed, very powerful country, very rich country. It's quite a prize you know, you can imagine if you were of a piratical mindset, you might really want to capture it. But how are you going to do that? Uh, because if you try to invade, I mean, the Japanese considered this back in World War II, and they dismissed the possibility out of hand because they were like, what, all those cowboys, those people are armed to the teeth, like they'll chew our armies to shreds. That's suicide, right? Um, like not even talking about the American military, just talking about the civilian population, how well armed they are, and that that sort of independent-minded cussedness of the American character where, you know, the cowboy is going to shoot you just for getting on his land, regardless of whether you're from the federal government, the state police, uh, a motorcycle gang, or the invading Russian army. Um, so that's just, it's not going to happen. Okay, so how do you do it? Well, you remove their ability to fight. And one of the things that got me thinking along these lines was reading uh, Herodotus's histories. And... He discusses how um, so the Persian Empire had a number of Ionian Greek cities that it had conquered. And uh, one of them was particularly troublesome. They kept revolting, and the emperor was at his wit's end as to how to deal with this. And a sort of traitorous uh, Greek king who was renowned for his, his wisdom um, I, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he basically tells the emperor, listen, here's what you do. Uh, you ban the men from uh, from practicing war or from holding weapons. Then you encourage their sons to uh, spend their time with poetry, drinking, dancing, you know, um, the arts, you know, all these kinds of relatively frivolous pursuits and not to spend their time uh, in athletic competitions, training for war, things like that. And um, this according to Herodotus, worked perfectly well. The city was perfectly pacified um, simply because the emperor was able to socially engineer it such that the men lost their will to fight. Uh, and that's what I think has been done to America. Um, you've had poisoning of the food supply, which has made people kind of sick and fat and lethargic. You've had assaults on family structure by encouraging divorce, by uh, encouraging women to kind of hate men, things like that. You've had sort of what you might characterize as like hormonal attacks, hormone-mimicking chemicals and plastics, for instance, or uh, medications like birth control pills, um, soy in the food, all sorts of things. I mean, exactly what the cause is, I'm not sure, but testosterone levels have plummeted over the last couple of generations. Uh, 
You have sort of ideological attacks on masculinity. Oh, it's toxic masculinity. You do that. Oh, you're mansplaining, you're manspreading. So there's like all of these things to kind of shame men for behaving like men. Uh, and then, of course, you have the sort of racial ideology of it. Oh, Americans, you stole your land from the natives, you were genocidal, racist, slavers, all of these kinds of things. And of course, you know, with that aspect, I mean, like a lot of it is based in, uh, you know, things that actually happened in history, but it's just the idea, they, they take this sort of one, this unidimensional emphasis on it to only look at the really bad things, right? And they, you know, bring the kids up to only see the bad things in their own people's history. And the result overall, when you put it all together, is a population that uh, is not really physically fit for war um, and does not consider itself to, does not have the moral confidence uh, to engage in defense of its homeland. So, you know, you can be as well armed as you like, but if you lack the will to use the tools you have, you're not going to use them. And then, oh, boom, you've lost your country without a shot being fired. Uh, and I, I, any one of those taken in isolation, you could kind of say, oh, well, you know, the adulteration of the food supply, well, that was just corporations being greedy. Um, things like, you know, you can even find a kind of relatively innocent explanation for it. But when you sort of see that they all vector towards the same direction, and then you say, oh, wait, who was actually, so who was, who was paying the academics who were spreading these ideas, who was behind the corporations that were um, putting this stuff into the food, who was controlling the regulatory agencies that were allowing this stuff to go into the food, and so on and so forth. And you, know, you start tracing it back and like, oh, it all goes back to like, you know, the Rockefellers and, you know, sort of organizations like that. Um, and it starts to look quite deliberate. Yeah, I, I have a comment on that because uh, I think that's really fascinating. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of discussions, obviously, everywhere, like who's really behind it? Uh, like, where's the real conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, to go uh, McGilchrist again, you know, maybe there's like two ways of, of looking at it, you know, that kind of seem contradictory. And, and, and one is, you know, to just say, I mean, there are mundane Or relatively mundane explanations for all of these things, right? I mean, greedy corporations, you know, um, some greedy politicians, corruption, and and, and all of that, right? Uh, stupidity and uh, just human human uh, weakness, basically. And uh, these things just play themselves out, right? Um, and uh, on the other hand, uh, as you say, I mean, since especially since it goes back such a long time, uh, you you just gotta wonder. I mean, how Is this even possible? You know, it, it's just, it seems like not really arbitrary. So that they're, um, and, you know, and, and, and that kind of gets, gets in a little bit into the metaphysical stuff, um, you know, and, and, and people, I think, increasingly start thinking along these lines as well. And I think that's a good thing, you know, just to have a kind of spiritual perspective um, on this thing. You know, that there's just, you know, on the one hand, it's all mundane. <clears throat> but then again, on the other hand, um, it's, 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 it just feels a bit like an epic, you know, battle between good and evil, you know, something like that. And what you have, what you have that whole discussion 
Um, sorry, to, sorry to cut you off. I just I got excited. No, so no, the idea that I've been like chewing on for like a few days now, I think it just crystallized. Um, so you have this kind of uh, uh, tension between models uh, involving bottom-up and top-down causality. Um, and you see this in other ways as well. So for instance, in, uh, you know, uh, conventional naive materialistic science, for instance, like, okay, everything is bottom up causality. It's like, it's atoms bumping into each other and they kind of randomly life emerges and it all ultimately comes from the bottom up. And then you have sort of top down causality where, you know, the alternative is like, well, you have some kind of teleology, which is drawing the universe, uh, sort of towards itself in certain directions. You see this sociologically as well, um, where the kind of bottom up are the people who say, oh, it's all systemic. You know, it's we've created this kind of system. We have this paradigm that we live in and that kind of causes everything to self-organize and these outcomes kind of naturally emerge, um, which is, again, that's the view which academics tend to want to uh, promulgate. They get very uncomfortable when you start talking about conspiracy theories, which are, of course, top down. We're saying, well, no, there's actual people who are making actual decisions which are influencing us. Why not both? Of course, uh, you know, you can have like the system is clearly there, but you can also identify obvious conspiracies that are taking place. Some of them right out in the open, you know, the, the world economic forum is not exactly a secret. Uh, and, um, you, you, you know, this is the systemicists would say, well, the world economic forum, like these people are, they, they're sort of created by the system. Right. Um, and then the conspiracy theorists would say, well, the people in the world economic forum created the system. And, but it seems to me that, you know, there's good arguments both ways and both are probably true, right? Uh, and, you know, the comment in the more metaphysical stuff, one thing that I found very interesting over the last several years, um, uh, kind of observing uh, the sort of dissident right and the discourse happening there is, you know, if you were to like look at them sort of circa 2014, 2015, they were all sort of like, you know, atheists, uh, systemicists, right? For the most part. Um, and that has kind of changed over the last few years where you increasingly are seeing people just like openly talking about like demonic possession and divine plans and like things like that. Cause like, you know, they'll see something like drag queen story hour and they're like, <laughs> that's not <laughs> like how, no, this is a demon. <laughs> There's a demon inside. <laughs> Demons. Well, that's a that's a really good point, actually, because uh, uh, again, getting back to Michael Rechtenwald, um, who is a, a warrior in the sense of putting out this information and being very brave and outspoken about it. You know, we asked him straight up. You know, how are you? Uh, what is your affiliation? Your feeling? Your religiosity about your journey? And and he was. You know, he he was very straightforward in his uh, admission that he believed in God, and it's what pr helped protect mm -hmm. him and strengthen him. And you know, in recent months, we had Jordan Peterson come out and 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 say what he did after his uh, his bout with the with the the um, the medication he was on, and and how he felt that there was a you know there was something undeniable. Uh, so this this. You know his uh, his years of maps of meaning had already had had become a a more experiential learning for him uh, in in suffering, 
and and he beautifully affirmed all that and articulated it. And um, you know, we've had Rod Dreher here talk about right wing dissidents. Uh, another, another person who speaks very strongly about faith and, and, um, networks of, of, uh, Christian individuals who, uh, were fighting, uh, if only to stay in, you know, safe with the help of faith and, and, and God. Um, so, uh, that's a good point, I think. Oh, I want to wrap There's up. There's two or, things that are okay. very powerful with that. Oh, okay. Sure. I was no, say, like, on, the, on the one hand, um, if you believe in God uh, or higher power, whatever you want to call it, uh, that gives you an, a, a very solid anchor for things. Um, I like to say that, you know, fear of death is the death of freedom. Like if you're not scared of dying, nothing can really scare you. Right. Um, but if you are, if you're like, this is all there is, and it's just blackness after that, then you can be controlled much more easily. Um, you know, like, and that's why, for instance, you know, Rod Dreher would note how the uh, m- most of the most effective dissidents in the Soviet Union were strongly believing Christians because, like, their faith gave them the strength to persist through that. Um, and on the other hand, uh, you know, the kind of spiritual evil powers and principalities kind of thing. Um, years ago, like back in the, back in the naughty oddies, uh, you know, I came across David Icke's whole thing with the reptilians, right. You know, shape shifting, time traveling, hyperdimensional, uh, demons basically, uh, who can like, you know, manipulate the timeline according to whatever they want, like, you know, insert ideas right into your mind, like all of these like horrifying capabilities that they have. And, you know, I, I'm not saying I believe that's true. I also don't necessarily disbelieve that kind of thing exists. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, to take that idea and consider it, what if that's true? What if the, what if such entities exist, right? Um, well, once you've confronted a possibility that terrifying, what can earthly powers, like how, how scary can they possibly be, right? Um, you know, Bill Gates can't insert a thought directly into my mind and he can't bounce around the timelines. Like, come on, like, what is he compared to that? Uh, you know, so, it, so it's, it's kind of these, these two aspects toward that, that viewpoint, I think, that make um, that kind of like spiritual uh, perspective especially useful for, um, for political distance. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm... Yeah, and... No, go ahead. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm writing I'm writing this series reviewing uh, Matthias Desmet's book Psychology of Totalitarianism, oh. and the bit the, the so the 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 next one that I'm writing, he great, deals great, with this great question. Series. Great series, by the way. Oh, great, thank you. So he's dealing with this question, <laughs> the question of conspiracies. So he he's he's looking at it, and his perspective is um, so he's he's not a. Uh, a top-down conspiracy theorist. I mean, uh, but at the same time, he he's not he's not like the the annoying anti-conspiracy theorist that uh, just you know rejects all that stuff. I mean, he he's you know totally aware of you know real real conspiracies. He just doesn't think there's a grand plan. And one of the one of the examples he uses to kind of get across his point is the the Sierpinski triangle. So I hadn't been aware of this. This is a fractal. 
And the way it works is, uh, I'm going to have a video of it in, in my article, but the way it works is you draw three dots, and then by following a very simple rule, so you take one dot at random, and then between that dot and the other dot, you draw a, a dot halfway through. And then from that one, you do this, you repeat the same step, pick a random dot, and and do the same thing, dot between. The more dots you draw, you'll get this beautiful fractal of triangles within triangles. And so from a seemingly from a seemingly random or seemingly random dots that you're putting, following very basic rules, you get a, you get a, an image, a final form that was not predictable, at least consciously, you know, that you're aware of, that emerges from the from the chaos. And so he's arguing that that crowd phenomena, like mass formation, is the same thing. Where and he he quotes um, from one of the one of the books. It might have been Laban's The Crowd, or it might might have been another one of a description of crowd behavior. And the 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 person uh, the writer describing this is just how how the crowd itself, like the like a mob, like a in a street, like a, a rioting mob, seems to have this higher intelligence of its own. Where when you're in the mob, you just know where it's going to be. You know where it's going, and it's like a, it's like the what are the the bird formations called? Like uh, where they they have those beautiful forms where it's like it looks a like squall. an organism. A squall. Yeah. A murmuration. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A murmuration. Uh, yeah. So that there are there are these higher higher orders of of form that emerge based on. Um, that, that don't have to be consciously planned, but that that can emerge, and, and it's and it's not like a it's not a strictly bottom up process. Like oh, it's just the result of of uh, you know ultimately the physical particles and the way they move, and you know it, you can't reduce it to that level. It's actually it might help to look at it. Uh, this is my perspective as as something higher that there is like almost this archetype that then is achieved through certain types of behaviors. So you can have um, from from this perspective all of the things that you're talking about that, that seem to be coordinated and all going to a particular end. Um, well, there's like conspiracy theorists and then there's coincidence theorists. And um, I hover, I, I, I go back and forth between them. Right. And, but I think that the, the, the position that appeals to me the most is like the, the cosmic coincidence theorist, where it's like synchronicity on the next level, where you have all of these things that aren't necessarily consciously connected to each other there's not a conspiracy of people saying okay you do this i'll do this because when we when we pervert the food supply we'll get this result and when we do this to the pharmaceutical industry we'll get this result and when we put them all together we'll have this glorious mismatch like um mix mash mix matched or or this 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 beautiful stew that will just be delicious of of control and totalitarianism that maybe that happens to some degree i don't know but that maybe it doesn't have to happen maybe that all of these things are are kind of coordinated on another level and because they are because they are all intrinsically going in the same direction they lead to this this fractal image which might be the which might be the crowd or it might be totalitarianism which as i like to describe it is like a is like a fractal system of of pathological government that reproduces itself on every level without like the it, it just seems to emerge it's not like you have the central committee who's saying okay now in this village we need this person in this position and all the way down and we need to replicate this no it just it just somehow happens and it's it's mysterious when you look at it uh, to the degree that a lot of people will say, oh, well, it must be planned. But then you'll have the people that say, oh, well, no, it's just purely the result of blah, 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 blah. But um, maybe there's like a third option that's, and and who knows, might, maybe it has something to do with, uh, you know, David Icke's reptilians or, you know, there's just something in the, there's something that, that provides the templates and that pulls in different directions. Like maybe you have these teleologies that are pulling in different directions. You know, you don't, you don't just have one 
teleology that we're all moving towards, but there are conflicting conflicting aims and conflicting goals that can lead to con- conflicting um, like full constellations, full shapes, full full types of order that can be like drastically different from each other. Yeah, kind of like uh, like 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 strange attractors, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Um, where like a, a dynamical like a jump from like you know one type of order to the next, uh, just based on sort of like low level deterministic um, behavior. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like this, like this idea like archetypal uh, forms or like you know morphic forms where you have like certain characteristic types of society that will kind of that societies will like naturally settle into just based on certain forms of behavior uh, that are encouraged. Um, that was one of the things I found interesting in Lobachewski's work uh, the first time I read that um, quite some time ago, where he's, uh, he's talking about um, how you have this kind of typical totalitarian system that he refers to as a pathocracy, uh, which just kind of emerges from the collective behavior of various character paths, sociopaths, psychopaths, narcissists, and, and, uh, and so on, um, that none of them probably are planning to put this kind of system into place. It just kind of emerges once they're in decision-making positions. Um, yeah, that was, that was scattered. Uh, cause there, there was, no. there was a lot to, to, to there, but yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely something to that, um, which is that, again, like, that's why that's why I kind of like lean towards that kind of distributist idea of you know pushing out the decision making power as widely as possible. Uh, if if you if you have the decision making power widely distributed, um, and you encourage virtue in the classical sense of that word uh as at an at an individual level um which is where you know christianity for instance has been very useful other religions as well um by encouraging people to be charitable and merciful and uh courageous and uh prudent and uh and so on then the emergent behavior of that ends up being quite a pleasant place to live for the most part uh and if you encourage sort of the vices, if you encourage people to be lustful and wrathful and and uh, greedy and envious and so on, the emergent behavior of that is hell on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's um, a, I just wanted to say that, oh, sorry, go ahead, uh, Adam. <laughs> uh, I was going to jump in and say that if you, uh, kind of like talking about what you were uh, saying earlier with regards to your, the way that you were seeing the uh, the alt-right, so to say, uh, or the dissident right, I think is how you put it. They um, they kind of rediscovered uh, Christianity, but also spirituality. Um, and they kind of came to it to a, a slightly different sense uh, or in a different way. It's not quite the same. Uh, what, how did I how did like, I think about it? The, the Chad priest, priest Chad. Yeah, Chad priests. Um, but then some of the other things yes. that you've written about with... Um, with regards to intelligent design, uh, as an example, where treating it with respect um, and not just completely dismissing it on you know purely materialistic grounds and and even rejecting materialism on purely philosophical grounds or um, stuff like that, it does 
and it Luke, you 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 mentioned something like this uh, earlier about you know you can't just dismiss spirituality because there does seem to be a a spiritual component to how we all exist um, in the world, and life is more than merely the atoms that make up our bodies. There's uh, and you you wrote this in one of your articles that there must be intelligence all the way down, and so it it stands to reason then if the, that if there's intelligence all the way down, then there must be intelligence all the way up as well. And so that kind of touches on what you were talking about, Harrison, where there's this intelligence that's informing uh, everything that it's below that is below it, similar to how we with our own bodies uh, can influence how our cells act by uh, by the food we eat, as an example. Like all of these things are, are all mirrors and fractals of each other. So it only makes sense then that there is this kind of higher informing power um you know maybe there's an actual like concrete intelligence there like a like a david ike satan <laughs> or maybe a satan or uh something along those lines or maybe it's just a platonic form um that one can channel or one can vibe with and then uh transdu transduce that information into our actual lived experience you know like you were just saying about how if you encourage virtue or if you encourage vice the the expression of that in the actual world that we live in can lead to very different uh outcomes and um and the way that we see things now, the way that we are experiencing things now, it's not just, you know, as you're saying, the, it's not just this top-down thing where, you know, there's a cabal of people saying, okay, you do this and you do that. It's, it's also like people are picking up on what it is that other people are doing. Um, and this is kind of like a, a byproduct of forced residence. Yes. It's a forced residence kind of thing. And so we're the majority of the population is, is kind of like picking up on that and therefore amplifying it. And so now we're kind of in this, this hellscape. And the people at the very top of it, um, they are locked in. Yeah. Right. To that resonance. Mm -hmm. That's that, that their power, their position in society is purely a function of their resonance with that system. If they fall out of resonance with it and they, and they're, I think, consciously aware of, very aware of this, that if they fall out of a step with it, like, boom, they're gone, you know, like the system will not hesitate to destroy them. Uh, and, but at the same time, you've got a, a very large fraction of the global population, um, you know, People in this podcast, people listening to this podcast, the the, the the broader global conversation that this podcast is a part of, uh, who are seeing that, rejecting it, deliberately trying to find a resonance with something better, and to a certain degree starting to find some success with that which is leading to this kind of, I'm sure you've all felt this, this kind of like almost splitting of reality that's happening. Uh, like where, the stand, like Stephen King's The Stand, right? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Um, it's not a splitting of reality. It's a hyper-reality, right? In the Baudrillardian sense, like the perception of reality. But um, it's... It, it, it seems like there are those who are trying to figure out what the truth of how the world works, what that truth actually is. And they're coming at it from like a million or, you know, more, more accurately, like a billion different directions, right? But all seem to be gradually converging on something which is very, very different from 
the kind of uh, the sort of more hegemonic paradigm that um, the rest of society is locked into. And, uh, you know, maybe within that, if that sort of, if that resonance can be amplified sufficiently by enough people, then you end, you ultimately end up with sort of like just two totally parallel societies alongside of one another. I don't, but I don't know if that would actually be stable uh, in the long run. I, I feel like if you're cohabiting in the, in the same territorial spaces, like that's just not, that's, you know, one ultimately has to displace the other, um, which could also, uh, you, do you know Chris Langan? Have you come across this guy? Rings a bell. He's Christopher Langan. He's, he's an interesting dude. He, he reputedly has an IQ of like, a, of like 200 oh. and he's developed this thing called the cognitive theoretic model of, of the universe, yeah. CTMU, um, which is very interesting stuff. Uh, I'm not even going to try and summarize it here, but it uh, certainly, uh, you guys should probably, I, I would recommend maybe bringing him on as a guest at some point. I think uh, it would be a really interesting conversation. But so one of the things he talks about is this kind of coming split, uh, uh, like a timeline split. Um, that we're, we're kind of living in this now where uh, the, the global elites, the system they're a part of is trying, he characterized them as basically parasites. Um, they are trying to drag us into this technological singularity where uh, the planet gets sort of like locked into this technocratic surveillance system that is completely global, completely inescapable, and therefore for all intents and purposes, perpetual. It's kind of like, like, like an attractor state, essentially. Uh, this is one of the thing, one, one of the final teleological states that human society can fall, fall into, um, which uh, he considers, and I agree, to be a failure mode. And then the other is the sort of human singularity, which um, you basically have similar level of technology, but there's no centralized control. Uh, people are doing pretty much as they want in their individual spaces. Um, everything is kind of very distributed. You don't have this kind of centralized parasitism. Uh, you still have networks for communication, but you don't have people with like brain chips controlling their minds, for instance. You don't have, you have you know, the at a financial system level, like you know, maybe people are using gold and cryptocurrencies instead of central bank digital currencies. Like all these kinds of subtle differences that create a completely different environment in the end. Um, so this is I, I brought up Chris Langan's uh, take on it just because, like, I think this is something that a lot of people are sort of intuiting um, mm -hmm. as as our current situation right now, like depending on how the next couple of decades go, we either end up with a really cool Star Trek future or um, something quite bleak. Well, it, one of the things I, that I at least... Uh... To... <laughs> I, we have this weird uh, yeah. time the shift. The timelines are splitting. Oh, it's, that, it's, that <laughs> eight, it's that eight minute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> The dimensions are overlapping. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was just going to make a comment about the, the individual aspect because you mentioned, uh, John, um, 
you know, when we talked about the political systems and things, um, that uh, actually at the end of the day, it's um, it's also about values, you know, like culture and virtues and things like that. And um, and I think that's that's really a crucial point to make, you know, before one talks about you know all those political systems and 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 things like that, uh, to just realize that the journey is really kind of an individual one and. Um, and as we talked about before, you know, um, with the attractor idea and and all of that, it, it I mean, we can I think relate even you know in, from our experience that um, you can kind of tune into these kinds of attractors, right? I mean, if you if you start your day, you know, like with with a workout and then are productive at work, you know, and you do that every day, and next thing you know, you know, all kinds of things change, and and you get in a total different reality, basically. I mean, that's just an, an actual experience that we we all have, you know, and uh, if we try it out, you know, and not slack, you know, just slack the day away all, all day long. Um, but uh, so, and, and that seems almost like you know you you can kind of tune into some kind of form or some kind of attractor or, or whatever, and and it kind of makes sense, you know, when you mentioned the the, the timeline split uh, idea. I mean, if you know, there's a cert certain people just go embark on that journey basically, and uh, over time just uh, manifest something different. You know, tune into something different, and um, and eventually, you know, who knows what happens? And I think we also need some imagination um, because, I mean, who the heck knows what happens, right? I mean, we just can't know, and um, and we always think, oh, it, it 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 must go on like this, you know, forever. But I mean, it's just, you know, we just can't know, you know, and it just all it kinds like of crazy. Yeah, it can just be it like, like yeah, and everything changes. So. Um, I just wanted to mention that the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? Like no one thought it would happen until like, you know, mm -hmm. the day it happened. It was like, oh, it's gone now. It doesn't exist. Like how, you know, um, it, yeah. So, I mean, you have, you have this like one frequency, which most of the population I think still like kind of tuned into, which is being like centrally broadcast everywhere and like, just like saturating people's neurons. And it's very difficult for people to tune out from that. And then you have, the other frequency that is not being centrally broadcast, uh, but which people are individually kind of seeking out, right? Like one by one, and the more they're able to tune into that, the more that they become immune to that uh, sort of radio interference coming from the central source, uh, which I think speaks to the character of the two. Like one has to be artificially imposed and the other is much more emergent. Um, mentioned values versus virtues this is something that i i i don't let's talk about values because like value it's like this it's like oh i i have this value right um well okay how do you know you have that value well i say i do you know i value diversity or i value tolerance or I, whatever right um okay well what does that actually mean like, what does that what does it imply for you as a person right does it change you as a person to say that you have this value it's like no it's actually a very empty thing um uh whereas like a virtue is like a verb it's like a thing that you do like you know you can say you're charitable but unless you are engaged in charity unless you were doing that or unless you were being courageous like you know or or what have you like you're, you're not embodying so like the virtue is a thing that you embody really you know um and it's something that uh, it's it, 
can only exist at the individual level due to the choice of the individual to embody that virtue to practice it. Whereas that the value is something you can sort of be like, oh, people say that we value this, our values. Okay, I go along with that too, you know, but it makes no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was uh, an out. But I don't think it's locked up. Like barely hear anyone talk about virtue anymore. Yeah. You know, even even with uh, with uh, with with Christians, for instance, I'll, I you know I have a little game I like to play with them, and I say them because I don't really think of myself as a Christian, but uh, and I'll say, you know, the seven deadly sins, and they, of course they do. You know the seven virtues. Blink, blink. Uh <laughs> Sorry, Adam, I, I totally cut you off there. Uh, no, that's uh, that's a good point. Uh, because now that you mentioned that, you know, I was uh, raised in a very religious household. So it's like, you know, I know the seven deadly sins, but you're right. I don't know the seven virtues. So you just like proved your own point. <laughs> um, but what I was going to actually say was in terms of what you were talking about in terms uh, the the competing space, you know, the two can't occupy the same space indefinitely. One will have to uh, eventually le win out over the other, um, at least in the way that we see things now and the way things are going now. Um, it's impossible. It's it's structurally, physically impossible for the the technocratic technocratic wet dream to to ever actually actualize because uh it's just structurally impossible like the way everything's crumbling now like with all of the transitions to green energy as an example right they want to keep pushing this transition to green energy but the more they do the more the the energy system fails because it's not a good system to use so if you try and and enforce a totalitarian system where everyone's got a brain chip and all of your tissue boxes have, you know, have chips in them and they're Wi-Fi connected. So that way an Amazon drone can automatically ship it to you. Like that kind of dream of reality is just, it's a pipe dream because it can't actually exist because the way that they're conceptualizing everything, it's actually impossible. So that gives me hope in its own right, because I know that it's actually impossible. Well, Yeah, and I think I think we've seen early signs of that over the last couple of years. Um, so, I, I, with the global coordination of the lockdowns and such, um, very obviously there was a centrally developed plan there that got triggered by the introduction of the coronavirus. Uh, whether that was accidental or deliberate, I'm agnostic, but certainly the plans were pre-existing. We have the documents, as Alex Jones would like to say. Uh, Got the white okay, so they, 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 they triggered all those plans, they implemented it. Yeah, we have the documents. Um, but uh, they seem to have run into a lot more resistance, a lot more friction than they expected. And I do not think at this point, two and a half years into this, that they are nearly as far along as they were hoping to be. Um, Similarly with the Russia-Ukraine situation, they obviously had their plan. We're going to deplatform Russia from the global economy and from the internet, and that will destroy Russia's economy. And then we'll use Ukraine as a beachhead to invade and dismantle Russia. Well, didn't work, did it? Um, so, you know, it kind of gets to the whole like conspiracy versus self-organizing uh, question, right? So a conspiracy is basically 
a plan developed by a group that hasn't told you about their plan, right? Uh, but as anyone, I mean, there's all sorts of fun little quotes with plans. I can't remember exactly who said these, but you know, it's like one is like everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, Mike Tyson. Another is you know every battle plan. Mike Tyson. There you go. Thank you. Uh, you know every. Uh, at no plan survives first contact with the enemy, uh, and uh, you know the enemy always gets a vote in the success of the plan. You know, so like they obviously had these plans, the organization to implement them, the ability to sort of trigger them and, and have them implemented on a large scale. And then they ran into reality, which turned to be much more complex than they thought, and it's not working. And for their for their plan to work, have to work pretty much perfectly. Or it's like global communist revolution, similar kind of problem, right? Even Marx would point out, like, the only way communism works is if it's a global system. Uh, and then it turns out, oh, yeah, conquering the world with one system turns out to be much harder than they thought. So they only ever got communism on, like, national scales, and then it just collapses under its own weight every single time because it can't compete. So... You know, I think in the near future, you're going to have, you know, these people are going to be running Western countries for some time to come. Um, I don't see them going anywhere in the next few months or years or what have you. Uh, but increasingly, like, they're just not going to be able to compete with the outside world. And systems is going to, like, be buckling under its own weight and eventually it will collapse. Like, Well, well, that kind of... Uh, uh, yes, exactly. And, you know, a little earlier, you mentioned Star Trek... Uh, and you should know that a few of us are uh, some big Star Trek nerds. And uh, this I'm conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to believe, right? Well, there was this in, in the uh, season premiere, the series premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation. We learned that um, oh. be before the, the uh, Earth got unified and the Federation got established, there was a World War III. And I always found Star Trek's predi predictive power to be so um, prescient, so insightful, that when I heard that, it, was, it almost came to me as, as though, oh my God, the, you know, that means that in our future, it's possible that we will experience a, real. A, a World War III because it's all real. And, and most recently, you know, we learned that there is also this eugenics war that occurs on the heels of a, a World War III. In any case, uh, it does seem as though Con, things are going. Yeah. Go ahead. Con. Yes, Con. Con. It does. Yes. Con. Con. It does <laughs> seem as though things are going to get much worse before they have a chance to get better. And um, we're going to mm. see some pretty big things play out on a scale that um, that might look that might make what we've witnessed in the past few years seem rather small by comparison. And we don't know what the, what the other side may look like, uh, where things are restored and improved and healed to such a degree that things begin to look normal and healthy again. But at least mm. I think with conversations like, like these that we're having, uh, there, is the, um, there is the hope and the the imagination and the and the knowledge and hopefully the insight and the wisdom to uh, 
to supply and provide the the seeds, the the soil, mm -hmm. the, the um, whatever whatever may assist us and and those who think like us and feel like us. Uh, to you help see what I see. <laughs> yes, you feel what I feel. <laughs> What's that from? V for Vendetta. V for Vendetta. <laughs> see. <laughs> so uh, I, I think these conversations are are super important. If if only to help us as individuals remain sane in the face of all that we're looking at and uh, and view as completely irrational and destructive. Well, it's. Um this kind of broader conversation is uh, a fascinating cultural phenomenon. It would not have been possible, of course, without the technology of the internet to enable you know, people to talk to each other on such a huge scale. Um, but what makes it so interesting is that the people engaged with it by and large, you know, we don't have institutional power. We don't have money, you know? Um, and yet, like you have a lot of very intelligent people who are reading intense, intensively, who are discussing a very broad array of ideas, uh, trying to diagnose you know, what, what is the problem with the, with the world right now? What are the problems? What are the possible solutions to it? And doing so in this kind of very uninhibited fashion, uh, you know, I would say 90% of the people doing this are pseudonymous. Uh, you know, specifically to retain that sort of freedom to say, you know, whatever, um, without fear of professional repercussion, for instance. And, the, and, and this conversation is much more interesting than what's actually happening in the kind of policy setting organs of society. Uh, and I, I do think that as the dust kind of settles, um, it's going to be whatever kind of emerges the most useful things that emerge from that discourse that kind of distributed online informal discourse that probably end up informing uh whatever comes next um it's kind of the the, the neo-reactionaries would talk a lot you know the neo-reaction movements like kind of curtis yarvin mencius moldbug those guys so one of their uh the, their 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 main interest uh intellectually was power uh what is the nature of power um in society uh how is power attained how is it used you know um what is its source or sources uh and they had a lot of very interesting things to say about it the one of the slogans that kind of emerged from them uh and it's kind of funny to think of a slogan emerging from like what is like an intensely autistic academic kind of subset of internet culture was uh, become worthy. So the basic idea there was that, um, you know, when you enter into a period of historical flux where uh, kind of the old elites are no longer able to cut the mustard, um, and it becomes very obvious that they don't have the competence or ability to do what needs to be done to, to uh, provide what society needs. The society will look around, okay, who can do it? And those who have become worthy 
of wielding power. Like, will the power will flow towards them in this kind of like natural organic process? Uh, so, like one example of that would be the transition from the landed aristocracy to the industrial bourgeois or bourgeoisie in the 19th century. Um, the aristocracy had ceased to become worthy. They were a relic of a previous time. You know, the idle rich, like in Downton Abbey, great show, by the way, just finished watching it. Uh, and um, the power naturally flowed into the hands of this kind of mercantilist class that had, you know, actually set about building the world around them. Um, which is, I, I, I suspect something like that is going to happen over the next several years. Uh, and that the, the ideas that are informing the people that are ultimately going to sort of end up in those positions of influence are probably going to be the ideas coming out of conversations like this one and the, the broader conversation that like, this is uh, kind of a part of. Yeah, that's kind of much more interesting. So you look at Elon Musk or Peter Thiel, for instance, you know, guys like that, like, you know, who's influencing them, right? Like, it's not Harvard. <laughs> that reminds me uh, of Michael McConkey, his substack, uh, Circulation of the Elites. So uh, kind of coming out, he, he right. in his in his book, The Managerial Class on Trial, he talks a bit about Manchester Mulbug and uh, the neo-reactionary um, you know, so offered solutions mm -hmm. and, but then he, he gets, he's, he's a fan of the, um, <clears throat> like those, uh, the Italian realist school. So Machiavelli into like Mosca and, um, uh, well, Burnham and, uh, like Pareto, Pareto and the, uh, this idea of circulation of the elites, like is pretty much what you described is, is the, it seems to be, um, just the the way the class structure of society like evolves over time is that the classes are supplanted by new classes, and so for for in, mm -hmm. for McConkey, it's the you know the class the, the global ruling class today is the managerial class. That's how he categorizes them, and but the, but yeah, it's interesting to think about what will be what will be the class that will supplant the managerial class because obviously every class every ruling class wants to rule forever and they'll. You know they'll fight to to do so, but it's a losing battle because they you know they will be toppled eventually. So w what will be the structure of the of the of the new class? That's a uh, yeah. That's uh, that. Well, I don't know the answer, but I th yeah, it would be interesting if there's something along the lines of, of what you're saying. But how would that how would that actually congeal into a you know an identify an, an an identifiable class? Um, well, it'll be interesting and probably. Uh, somewhat horrifying to see, to see it play out but uh yeah uh, I'll, I'll watch the show but yeah yeah um yeah i mean like you go from having a, a warrior aristocracy in the middle ages that evolves into uh the the landed aristocracy that then evolves into the industrial bourgeoisie that then evolves into the managerial class which is kind of where we find ourselves now um and uh, we're certainly at that time where the existing class structure has become rather intolerable and the limitations of the existing ruling class have become quite stark. Um, that's why their little conspiracies don't seem to be working very well, right? Like I, this whole Great Reset thing, if they tried this 30 years ago, I mean, the technology wasn't there, but the people that they had probably had the competence level to pull it off. People now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you know? So yeah, what does come next? I don't know. I mean, like, I guess like someone like Moldbug would say that it would be your sort of Silicon Valley entrepreneurial type kind of a return to like some combination of like the bourgeoisie and, uh, and the landed aristocracy. I'm skeptical. That kind of neo-feudal vision is what will actually emerge. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Hmm. That's a good question. Interesting. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, if, if, if the darkest, if the darkest uh, predictions of massive civil war in the United States with like, you know, 100 million people dying in like over years of, uh, you know, um, Bosnia style conflict were to emerge, then you might imagine it'd be some kind of the, the new elite would be like, I don't know, gangster warlords, perhaps. Yeah, but, like param <laughs> paramilitary. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, because I guess we've there's like a limited, uh, at least historically, there's a limited number of options of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, of classes. Because if you look back, you can all, like all of those classes that you mentioned. I mean, they've pretty much always existed to some degree. Like even if you go back to you know ancient Near East, where you had the scribes, which were like the you know the the managers, and then you had the the actual landowners. I mean, they they were all there. It's it's just the 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 relative you know the relative power positions that kind of shift over time. So yeah, so maybe it will maybe. Yeah, it could revert back to the, the the military aristocracy, or you know, probably it probably wouldn't be directed again to the just the the kind of um, uh, well landed aristocracy. Now, Pro you know, the the one that just seems the most logical, just off the top of my head, would be some type of military, um, or or like you said, uh, maybe a version of the manage like the managerial class can kind of split, and you get the the kind of like you said. The Silicon Valley CEO type, which is they're, they're essentially, you know, how 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 different are they? Well, I mean, there are some differences, but uh, it's still kind of like part of Certainly part of the you, system. If you look at the roots, if you look at the roots, like uh, in the, the sort of nineties era, to early two thousands era, they 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 had that kind of techno libertarian cypherpunk um, bias to them. Uh, that was, it's, it's quite distinct from what you see now, but um, although I think like Musk, for instance, you still kind of see that in him. And there is certainly does seem to be some element of that. You know, you look at some of the pushback against woke that you see coming from organizations like Coinbase, for instance, where they're just like, no, like we're just done with the politics, like just, just get it out, right? Um, so, I mean, yeah, that is a possibility. In terms of the, the base and that caste structure, you're right. That's been that's very old. I mean, you see that with like the the Proto-Indo-European society, those who pray, those who work, and those who fight. Uh, and that gets replicated sort of in um certainly every descendant of the Proto-Indo-European societies, it uh it, it gets solidified in like Indian society with their their caste system. Um the Kshatriya and the uh, Vaisya and the uh, Brahmins and so on. Um, the traditional way for Europeans to organize themselves over most of European history was to have the warrior caste in charge. Um, so that, that 
that really we only moved away from that i think in the last couple hundred years so it could just be that we, we settle back into into that uh but you got to be careful because eras of large scale warfare like we're potentially staring at right now with world war three don't necessarily lead in that direction do they i mean you know world war ii saw the rise of the managerial class world war one and world war two right like you didn't have like the warrior caste suddenly is running everything right or um another example you can point to is uh back in the early 2000s um as america was embarking on its wars of choice in the middle east and you had all of these neocon uh intellectuals running around saying oh you know we're gonna build this empire in the middle east and this will lead to a renewal of martial virtue in the American soul and, you know, like the, the rise of a new warrior caste and we should do it just for that. Right. And of course that's not what happened over the last 20 years, like at all. I mean, um, so it's, it's not always so linear, uh, which that, that, I mean, that's why I don't try to predict exactly what's ever going to happen in the future. Um, you know, the one, except to say very broad things, like it will generally be, less exciting more banal and not as terrifying as you know uh as we worry or hope you know like uh the examples i like to point to are you know you read like cyberpunk fiction of the 1980s and by this time we're all supposed to have like neuro like you know jacks <laughs> into like the internet and there's like there's like street samurai with like you know like, shining cybernetic limbs like running around having like you know open battles with smart guns and and uh you know android drones in the streets yeah no we have facebook <laughs> you yeah. know it's like but the thing is you know with the technological prediction it's so funny um you know when you watch the old the first star trek uh, series And they yes. have all these amazing like space travel technology and beaming and what have you. And then, you know, like Captain Kirk's um, secretary comes up, you know, with a piece of paper that he needs to sign, you know, and they, they yes. send letters. They have a post, you know, they, they didn't even imagine email. So it's really yes. amazing, you know, and, and, and also later, you know, people imagine all kinds of things, but social media never you know nobody like imagined that so uh, you got to really be careful with this <laughs> exactly but but exactly. you know I, oh sorry go ahead isn't it technological extrapolation like you can do that to a certain degree but usually because the real world always turns out to be more complicated than you thought like you know uh you often end up being able to do uh, the technology to a certain degree but it turns out to be much harder to, than you expected you know like that we thought we'd have cities on the moon and mars by now and we're still paddling around in low earth orbit for instance um <laughs> you know it's uh yeah and then like yeah the sociological extrapolations you know um did anyone predict traffic jams <laughs> as a consequence of the automobile like i or, or, or suburbs like i don't i don't think anyone did yeah it's true and uh, i just want to uh, say something about that you know in terms of truth seeking and um uh that was mentioned uh before you know i, I think um and that's why I, i like your substack as well you know because uh you you seem to have like a kind of a playful approach to it and you just try things out you know and, and uh, just with you know essays that's basically what it means right to, to try something out and i think that's kind of a good approach because if you get too like stuck on i want to find the truth i want to find the truth you know and um 
then you you might lose that a bit and it becomes a bit like rigid or like um you know the, or maybe in, in some cases even paranoid and um if you know since we cannot really predict the future it's so open you know so i think you need that kind of like um just try out an idea run with it you know i think it through and it doesn't mean like that's you know like the the whole story or that you know it's you know or maybe you it's not even like you know maybe it's the wrong direction at times but uh, that's kind of like uh, a good spirit to you know figure things out basically without becoming too um doctrinal or like uh, you know to to too serious basically yeah no i'm i'm i i try to have fun with everything i write try to i try to like stay playful because it's a way of staying a little bit humble right and like you know i don't necessarily know what the truth is about something right and like the experience in life is showing this many many times i'm interested in finding what the truth is uh or you know getting closer to it but i don't know and i never will um that's the human condition so why not be playful with it and if you're kind of joking a bit around a bit and having like little flights of fancy it kind of helps to knock you out of that kind of uh tendency towards dogmatism and then I find people they I've been surprised by the response actually. Um you know I'll write I'll write a, a an essay and I'll have like 50 comments within the next, you know, 24 hours uh of cuz you know and usually it's the ones where it'll be like funny like funny stuff. I did one where it was like uh um you know it starts out with this like uh warlord who's just conquered Canada and uh you know put and uh executed like all of parliament right and then he's like giving a little speech where he like lays out okay you know here's what i'm gonna uh here's here's what policy is gonna be you know in canada from now on and uh, most of the policy measures were actually pretty anodyne um you know like here's what our northern development policy is going to be things like that and uh but then one thing i slipped in there was yeah no abortion and no birth control pills those are banned um and oh my 150 comments out of that and like a, she, like people got so angry about like the idea of banning brew which I, I was a bit surprised by it um <laughs> but i i find like having uh that sort of off the cuff sort of uh just kind of throwing things out there um it does seem to trigger responses from people like they want to then say like, hey, you were wrong about this, or here's what I think about this, or something. And you get these very interesting um, conversations that develop in the comments as a result of that. It's my favorite part of the project. Well, I think I think implied in that is an openness, uh, like you like you yeah. suggested you have, that you don't know everything. There's a humbleness, which is not only good for you, but it comes across uh, to those reading it. And it also flies in the face of all the, the dogmatism, like you said, and, and all of the identification and a emotional um, uh, kind of strangulating connection people have to ideas these days, where you, you know, you're, you're reading something and, and you can hear the fist slamming against the table. And so it's refreshing to, to have a, you know, a more open, uh, and as Luke said, playful approach to it, it suggests a, um, uh, a, a discussion, a conversation, a, a free-flowing yeah. exchange, which, uh, which people are starving for. They don't want to, you know, how many, how many friends and, and family members do each of us have 
where the, the conversation on certain topics is essentially nil. It's closed. It's done. It's dead. And, and this is a, it's stultifying. It, it's painful. It's deadening. It, it, it closes off relationships. It, um, it, it destroys connections. Your aunt, your, aunt, your aunt is giving you MSNBC and your uncle is giving you Fox News. <laughs> and I could just turn right. on the TV and get the same. Like, what is <laughs> But exactly. they both get angry at you if you're not. <laughs> yeah, right. And the same seems to happen on Twitter as well, you know, just on a on another level. So you have these kind of like um, divide as well. And uh, and that's maybe why something like Substack is is really uh, yes. kind of an, an interesting subculture. You know, I when I uh, started my Substack, I just thought, yeah, that that might be interesting, you know. But I didn't really look into the platform too much, and I was surprised, you know, to to see that there is like all kinds of cool stuff going on and. Uh, Uh, yeah, and it's kind of like the, not Twitter, right? <laughs> so that's a good. You know, thing. It's, it's remarkable what Substack did because all it's just a blogging platform, but it's really seamless. It's very easy. All you just put in your email, boom, you're, you have an account now, right? Uh, and just that, I think that one little um, thing they have in the comments section where if someone has their own Substack that just like shows up next to the name, writes whatever, right? And then like, if, you know, so if you read a comment by somebody, oh, that was a really good comment. Hey, I wonder if this person, you know, you go and check out their Substack, and 90% of the time it's like coming soon. And it's like eight months ago. And it's like, they never actually read. Okay, whatever. But sometimes you find someone who wrote something like who has this like really active and they got a lot of really interesting things to say and you come and um, so it, it kind of operates as the social network itself rather than just a blogging platform. It's kind of the point. Uh, any of the recommendation features and stuff like that, which, which uh, help with that as well. But rather than something like Twitter, which is optimized towards, um, you know, the 240 character, like, you know, tweet, which is impossible to say anything deep or interesting in and just ends up people yelling at each other. Uh, it's optimized for long form, which is more thoughtful where people can like, you know, put a little bit more time into what they're saying about something and it makes their point a little bit more clearly. So you end up with a more elevated level of collective discussion just as a result of the format uh, that is adopted, you know? Um, and the architecture of a, so a social media system makes a huge difference to uh, the, the kind of emergent discourse that you get from it, I think. Well, there was, uh, and like going off on, on that for just a second, uh, and kind of like what we were talking about earlier in terms of not being able to predict the future. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of, you know, all of the various, uh, different like platforms that people have tried to create and tried to make something along this line mm -hmm. for more thoughtful, uh, communication styles and, and how, like, I don't know anybody who uses, What was it called? ThinkSpot? Was that Jordan Peterson's thing? I don't know anyone who actually uses that. Never heard of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, and that was intentionally designed to try and create something like this, where people are able to, to, to write out uh, well thought out arguments and testing out ideas and communicating with other people and, and sharing and, um, You know, essentially, you know, what Substack has become was what other people have tried to do, but failed. And so this seems to be uh, one of those other examples of like, you know, there's no sense in trying to predict the future or, you know, getting hung up on 
on this or that possibility or trying even to create something in particular because there's no way of knowing what the actual outcome will be. Um, so it's and sometimes yeah. when you try really, really, really hard to do something and mm. just, it, it, you know, you're try hard, right? It's, it's cringe. It doesn't work. And then something that's like more off the cuff to just wait, why did that work so well? History and development of flight kind of reminds me of this. So you had uh, a very large amount of money being put into research programs by the federal government to try and develop a heavier-than-air fixed-wing uh, aircraft. Completely fruitlessly. For years, with no good results, right? And then who ends up doing it? Uh, a couple of couple of brothers working out of a garage basically launched like a glorified kite with a motor on it. And like, oh, look at that. We can fly now, you know? Um, so, uh, you never really know exactly where that breakthrough is going to come. And it's often something much simpler than anyone, anyone mm -hmm. would have expected. I think Substack also, um, one of the reasons that it succeeded where other opportunity, other attempts failed, uh, is that they didn't just look at the architecture of it. The architecture is actually very, very simple. Uh, they emphasized the human element. So, you know, if you remember when Substack first started, they, deliberately sought out a wide array of well-known journalists and writers, you know, people like uh, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, so on, um, who had established audiences and said, hey, we've got this platform where you know, people can subscribe, they can pay if they want. Uh, it's up to you what you put behind a paywall and so on. You can protect, maybe if this works out, you can support yourself without having to write for the New York Times or whatever, right? And like, you know, these guys were so, I think, sick of dealing with corporate media uh, and centralized editorial control. They're like, wait, I can just write whatever I want. And like my audiences might pay me for it. Okay, I'll try it out. Why not? Um, and uh, they, they have the Substack fellowships, I think, too. So they would at least get paid uh for like a year or so um while they built up their audience and that attracted a large number of readers to the platform and it got quickly reputation for being well this is where you go if you want to find high quality writing from people writing outside of the legacy media system where you're going to get more interesting perspectives on things and it seems to be hitting that kind of inflection point i think uh now we're like, you know, you're starting to see this explosive growth of Substack blogs and like a lot of people coming in and, um, and it, it's very clever what they did. Uh, but it was that emphasis on the human element, I think, that actually was the game changer. Rather than just like build the platform and they will come, it's like build the platform, okay, and now we're going to get the best people in the platform first and boom, like that's what made the difference. Well, how are we guys doing for time? Do we have any anything else we want to talk about, or do we want to call it a day? Any, um, John? Anything you wanted wanna, to mention? Um, yeah, uh, my, my my myself. No, um, it, I know we're reaching about two hours, uh, and my experience with podcasts is that 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 gets to be at the limit of uh, yeah. most listeners' attention spans. Yeah, I just have a final question, and uh, it's maybe the most important one. So first, um, 
uh, is there any other substack you know that you particularly like um, that you mm. you would recommend? And second, well, I, have, uh, I have a number of substacks that are that are that I'm recommending. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right through the platform, right? Uh, but yeah, mm. it's maybe something comes to mind, and and also um, uh, in terms of science fiction books. So, is there anything that you you really like? So that's maybe the most important question. Or maybe just one, you know, like that you. That's such, that's such a long list. Uh, probably like my favorites would be like, you know, relatively well-known ones. I already mentioned Starship Troopers, Dune, of course, you know, uh, Neuromancer. Um, Gene Wolfe, maybe not as well-known, his, his uh, book of the New Sun is one of the most phenomenal deepest works I think I've ever encountered. Um, the most recent things that I dove into, I, I binged read the entire Monster Hunter International series by Larry Correa a few months ago. And then I went from there to Jim Butcher's uh, Dresden Files and binge, binge read all 17 of those books over the course of a few months. Those were um, a lot of fun. A lot oh, yeah. of fun. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you've read Jim Butcher? Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I was, I was, for like a month after I finished the last book, I was like, okay, what, like, kept searching, okay, like, have you got like a release date for the next book yet? Like, still like, no. I'm just like, ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> John Wright, uh, actually, he's not so well known, um, but uh, he's probably one of the top prose stylists, I would say, in uh, science fiction and fantasy right now. Um, What's one of the books he, that he's written? Uh, um, so he's, he's written quite a few. Uh, he's a, a hard science fiction series, um, like a space opera series called the... Uh, I think it's called the eschaton sequence or sometimes referred to as count to a trillion, um, which goes from just after the modern day to the end of the universe and everything that happens in between all from the point of view of like the same character. Um, and it is, it's like reading E doc Smith's Lensman series or the, uh, um, Last and First Men by Ola Stapledon. Like, there's just all of these kinds of things that get like you know bundled into it. It's, it's impossible to summarize, but really quite amazing. And it's especially interesting because the guy is a Catholic, and he's like a hardcore Catholic. Uh, and he he's writing a higher science fiction series where he actually manages to like build in Catholic theology into it in like a plausible way. <laughs> it's, well, isn't um, isn't Gene Wolfe Catholic too? Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yes, he is. And that, that, that definitely informs his, um, his book of the new sun series as well. Like it, it, uh, I mean, the main character is basically Jesus. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> that sounds intriguing. <laughs> well, it, it's, he's a torturer, not a, a professional torturer rather than being a carpenter. Um, which is, uh, an interesting choice. Um, but it was like time travel and it's very, it's, it's this very sort of 
interesting setting where like it's like takes place in the very 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 distant future where technology has basically become magic because civilization has risen and fallen and risen and fallen so many times that humans are just living on top of this like accretion of the ruins of like previous civilizations and they don't really understand any of the technologies they find lying around so it's just like magic to them but it's actually a science fiction universe um but it feels like epic fantasy it's uh cool it, it, cool. it's it, it's really well done he's a, he's a phenomenal writer um substacks who would i recommend uh I often point people towards my uh, my friend Rolo Slavsky, um, who uh, he has a his main focus is on Russia, Russian politics, uh, like in, internal Russia. He's got he's got kind of like a very dissident right perspective on things, and maybe he's, he's a little spicier than uh, than some of your um, some of your typical listeners might be used to. He definitely comes out of like the like I said, the very very dissident right kind of. Uh, kind of place uh tell me how this ends by chris bray i find him to be like consistently like quite entertaining um let's see who else we got neo ciceronian times i've been following that guy for quite quite some time he's always interesting he's kind of like a, a neo reactionary uh doc hammers anvil i think that that needs a little bit more love um He's uh he's kind of a cool like engineer libertarian uh type. Um there's a, a bunch of others. I mean you can go to my Substack and see all the ones that I recommend. There's probably yeah. I'm probably recommending yeah. too many at this point. It's probably overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the thing, right? I mean, once you, you start browsing on Substack, it's just so much and it takes some time even to figure out, you know, what these guys are about. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I it's shame to say that I only sometimes myself, like, you know when I subscribe to a new Substack and, you know, a bunch of recommendations, I'm like, uh, unclick, unclick. I just don't know yet, you know, but, um, I've also right. picked up quite a few subscribers from that, from that. Oh, yeah. 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 Substack's great. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. A lot. Yeah, no, thank you, John. Uh, so once again, uh, barsoom.substack.com, we'll give the links and yeah, subscribe on Substack. Do you have a, a, a paid subscription option, John? I can't remember. Nope. No. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Me neither. No. Nope. So yeah, totally I am, free. I am. I am yeah, totally free. Uh, there's nothing behind a paywall. I, I may introduce a paid option at some point in the future. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think there's enough people on it yet to yeah. for that to any any point with that. But I don't think I would put anything behind paywalls. Um, I always get annoyed when I go to someone's Substack and I find out that I can only comment if I'm a paid subscriber and I'm like, ah, oh, it's so dirty. <laughs> <Don't like that. laughs> All right. So thanks, John. It was, it was, a, <laughs> we had a great time. Uh, and yeah, we'd be, we'd love to have you on again sometime to just talk about a whole bunch of other random stuff because we covered a lot of ground today. So, <laughs> so continue on, carry on. Uh, cool. And we'll, Talk later. Have a good week. Excellent. Thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me on. This is a, a great conversation. I had a lovely time. Cool. All good right. talking Bye, to you. Thanks a lot.